So Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse number 9. And here is how it reads. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats. We are in our sermon series on prayer. The church is at its best. The church is most effective, and the church is most prepared when it focuses on prayer. If there is one thing that should define the church is that those are some praying people. And Jesus here in Matthew chapter 6, he opens in, in verse, he first tells his disciples how not to pray. Don't pray like hypocrites. Don't pray like pagans. And then he gives them this template or this model for praying effectively. And last week we looked at the very first line of this model prayer, the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven. And we said last week, that this was a radical teaching of Jesus and that Jews sparingly referred to Jesus as Father. However, Jesus teaches his disciples that they have a unique relationship with God. He is their Father and they are his children. Therefore, they can approach confidently and boldly before his throne and prayer. As we said last week, as their father, he is always more ready to hear their prayers than they are to pray their prayers. They, they have this unique relationship with the father. They have a very intimate connection with the father. But he reminds them, though this God condescends to, to have a relationship with us, he still is our father in heaven. There is a distance between us. He's heavenly, we are earthly. So therefore, we should approach him with reverence and awe. We, we should approach him as the God that is holy and righteous. And then we also said the fact that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven teaches them that he is nothing like their earthly father. If you had a, a, a bad earthly father, a father that was not present, uh, not available, not a provider, God is not like your earthly father. He is our father in heaven. We said last week that maybe even you have or had a good father. He, he was everything that a father was supposed to be. And Jesus teaches us that he's, that he's still nowhere near as good as our Father in heaven. You may have a good father, but we serve the good, good Father who's perfect in all of his ways. 
And so last week, we looked at the address, and I spared you, and our message was only 20 minutes. So y'all owe me at least 25 this week. And I came ready. Get comfortable, get your apple juice. We now move from, y'all laughing, but I'm serious. Y'all, we now move from the address in this model prayer to the specific petitions. Jesus moves from the address to specific petitions. And today I want us to look at the first three petitions in this model prayer or this disciples prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, before we get to our outline this morning, it's important that as we look at these first three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, that we observe that the first of these petitions of this model prayer are all God-oriented petitions. They're about God, not us. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be or, or your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is crucial, church. Jesus teaches his disciples that prayer begins with God's interest, not ours. I'll say that again. Jesus teaches his disciples that prayer begins with God's interest, not ours. All too often, we want to jump right into asking God for what we want him to do for us. Bless us, heal us, give us, provide for us, change us. And these are all right requests, by the way. We should pray these uh, types of requests. But Jesus teaches here in this model prayer that true prayer always begins with God's priorities, not our priorities. So teach Jesus here in verses 9 through 10 teaches his disciples that the goal of prayer is the promotion of God's reputation, the advancement of God's rule, and the performance of God's will. Give it to me one more time, Brandon. So Jesus teaches his disciples that the goal of prayer is the promotion of God's reputation, the advancement of God's rule, and the performance of God's will. That's my sermon this morning. That don't mean I'm done. The goal of prayer is the promotion of God's reputation, the advancement of God's rule, and the performance of God's will. Let's dive in. First of all, Jesus teaches us about the primacy of prayer. P-R-I-M-A-C-Y. What's utmost importance? The promising of prayer. Verse 9 See clause. The first of the petitions of this model prayer is hallowed be your name. That word hallowed is an old English term for holy. Now, most of our English translations translate this statement as an indicative statement. Or, or it, it's translated as a statement of fact. Hallowed be your name. Which, by the way, is a true statement. His name is holy. 
However, a more faithful rendering of the original language would read like this. Let your name be made holy. It's a petition. Or let your name be sanctified. What, what then is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray? Let's look. Let's, let's dive in. The word hollowed or holy, as we know, means to be set apart. It is to be, to be extraordinary. It is to be uncommon. Now, we, we, we all practice this concept of holiness. That there, there is something in our lives, in our homes, that we treat different than all other things. There, if, 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 your, if, your, if you, your mom, or your grandmother, somebody has china, fine china, that was holy china. <laughs> you don't mess with it. You don't touch it. It, it, it was different. And, and so it was holy in a sense. God is holy. He is totally set apart from all of creation. There is no one like our God. He's incomparable. He has no rival. He, he, he's holy. He's extraordinary. He's uncommon. Now, let your name be made holy or let your name be kept holy. What is he talking about when he says name? Remember. That in this Jewish context, in the Bible, the name is not just an identifier. It, it, it was not just one way of identifying one person from another person. The, the name had meaning. The, the name represents the person and everything about the person. The, the, the name was indicative of their character their nature, their attributes, even their destiny. So there was thought put into the naming of people during the biblical times. And let me give you an example. This lady by the name of Mary, who is likely a teenager, is betrothed to this guy by the name of Joseph, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. We know, we know this as the virgin birth. The angel first come to Joseph, lets Joseph know this is of God. Don't put Mary out. She's going to have a baby, and I want you to call him Jesus. Why? The name Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, means Yahweh saves. We see that he was named Jesus, Iesu, by intentionally because it signified his character. He's a savior. He's defined by saving those who need to be rescued. But it also showed his mission. He would save people from their sins. So, so Jesus now when he teaches, let your name be made holy, is he, he, what is he teaching us? He's teaching us, or he's teaching his disciples to pray for all people 
to recognize and acknowledge the holy name, or we can say the holy person of God, by giving it the reverence it's due. When people acknowledge the name of God as holy, that should cause them to repent. That, 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 that word repent means to turn from and turn to. It, it is a complete 180. I turn from whatever idol that I am serving and I turn to the one true God. So on one hand, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray that all people would reverence God as holy. To regards to regard God's name as holy is to regard him not as a God among many other gods, but the one true God. See, see, as a God among many other gods, that means that there are other options to be worshipped. For God to be a God among many other gods, by definition, means that he is not holy. He, there is some, some group that he has things in common with. And remember, we said holy means to be uncommon. He's not a God among many other gods. He is the one true God. For those who are already members of the family of God, how do we reverence God's holy name? How do we make sure that we are living up to this petition to let your name be made holy. Bible study tip. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So let's just look at some Scripture to see how we hollow God's name. Let me give you first, uh, um, let me give you this Scripture. Isaiah chapter 29, verse number 23. Here's what the Lord says. He says, when people see the work of my hands in their midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, watch this, and will stand in awe of him. To set apart God's name means to stand in awe of him. Let me see. Let me see. In other words, the best way to think about this idea of standing in awe of God is to think about what happens to people when they see one of the seven wonders of the world. When they see one of those great seven wonders of the world, oftentimes what you see people do is they gasp. Why? Because their breath has been taken away. They're in awe of this wondrous creation. To, 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 the one idea, one way we can say to stand in awe of God is to have your breath taken away by God. Quick question, quick question. Does God still take your breath away? Mm. Or, or has God become so routine and common that now your spiritual life is just stagnant. When it comes to your walk with God, are you just on cruise control? 
Maybe the problem in the church, while we are so complacent and we have become stationary rather than missionary, is because we've lost. God no longer takes our breath away. When we stand in awe of God, it should cause us to bow down and worship him. God says in Isaiah 29 that what would take away the breath of his people would be the work of his hands. Friends, maybe to, for, to get that awe back, what we need to do is just go outside. It's pretty weather. Thank God. And just stand in awe of God's creation. Just look at the universe and see how it operates. And that ought to take your breath away. I've told you, I've used this example before. It amazes me that how the universe, the earth is set in a place where it is perfect. And if we get any closer, even just an eighth of an inch, a sixteenth of an inch closer to the sun, we'll all burn up. But the earth, it's right where it needs to be so that if we get any further away from the sun, we'll all freeze to death. Who can do that but a wonderful creator? He ought to take your breath away. Look at you. You ought to take your breath away. Not to be vain. But look at all the systems that make up the human body. Somebody help me here. We've got the respiratory system and all those systems. You know what I'm talking about. Who else but God could come up with all these systems to make us live and breathe and move and have our being? You all ought to take your own breath away. Okay, you don't like the physical side of you. Let me look at the spirit side of you. You were dead in your sins. And God, God breathed his breath of life back into you and made you alive again through Jesus Christ our Lord. You ought to take your breath away and that you have been redeemed. You have been saved. You have been delivered from the old you. How else? How else? Let me move on. That wasn't even my main point. How else do we reverence God's holy name? How else do we treat God's name as holy? Now, we're going to look at an extensive passage right here. It's crucial, but it it, it makes this all clear for us. We're going to go to a book called Ezekiel. You're going to show up on your Bible app now. Ezekiel chapter number 36. And we've got it on the screen for you as well. Remember, we're answering the question, how do we treat God's name in a holy way? Ezekiel chapter number 36. And I want to look at verses 16 through 32. Ezekiel chapter number 36, beginning of verse 16 through 32, and keep this question in your mind. How do we treat God's name in a holy manner? Let's read. Ezekiel 36, verse 16. This is Ezekiel speaking, the prophet of God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. It's the Lord speaking now to Ezekiel. 
when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. The ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, here it is, they profaned profaned my holy name. That word profane means to treat with contempt. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. If you have a pen, pencil, highlighter, you want to highlight verse 26 and 27. This, friends, is the new covenant. Remember, later on, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. When Jesus first gave that meal to his disciples, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Here it is. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You can read later through verse 32. Notice here in this text what profanes God's holy name. Verse 17 he says, they defiled the land by their ways and their deeds. So then, what profanes God's holy name is the conduct and the behavior of God's people. Verse 18, how else was God's name profaned? Verse 18, he says, I poured out my wrath upon them, here it is, for the blood that they had shed in the land. Unjust murder profanes God's holy name. 
And remember, name can also be uh, understood as reputation. God's rep is on the line here. Look at verse 18 again. How else was God's name profaned? They shed blood. My wrath went upon them also for the idols which with they had defiled. So idolatry profanes the name of God. So if those things profane God's name, then the opposite must sanctify his name. Look at it. Our conduct and our behavior is evidence that we reference God's holy name. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, But as he who has called you is holy, so you should be holy in your conduct. We, we treat God's name as holy, church, when we are living according to his holy commands. If bloodshed profanes God's holy name, then that means that we treat God's name as holy when we value life. To reverence God's holy name is to be pro-life. Now, let me create some, friend, some enemies right here. As I've said before, there's a difference, and I say this because I want us to be reflective, there's a difference between being pro-birth and pro-life. You can be pro-birth and not be pro-life. What happened to all them amens I had a while ago? <laughs> Reflect later and say amen right now. <laughs> but you cannot be pro-life and not be pro-birth. Notice, what profane God's holy name, and, and I got to take this back to the scripture, otherwise I get accused of having some other agenda. What profanes God's holy name, according to Ezekiel 36, was bloodshed. Unjust murder profane the holy name of God. God's people were in a land and they were committing murder for unjust reason. And God says, you are killing my reputation. So then, if we want to let his name be kept holy, then we are pro-life people. That's womb through the tomb. We, we cannot be people that are pro-life and we won't, and we, really what, a lot of times what we mean by pro-life is we're anti-abortion. But in the economy of God, it doesn't end there. God cares about the life of the person from the womb to the tomb. That means while they are on the earth, we ought to be pro-life in all, whatever that means. It does no good to fight for the baby to get here and to say, well, you're on your own. It's your choice. Just work harder. I'm going to do it. 
to treat God's name as holy. I'll move on. I got another sermon coming on that. To treat God's name as holy means that we forsake idolatry in all its forms. It means we don't bow the knee to any God except the God who saved us. Idolatry at its core is to give glory to something or someone else that only belongs to God. So then, that means to sanctify the name of God is to live for his glory and his glory alone. That's what you ought to be mad about me saying, not about the whole pro-life stuff, by the way. That, That totally changes our worldview. What I just said, to sanctify, let me say it again, to sanctify the name of God is to live for his glory and his glory alone. Thank you. It is to give unto the Lord the glory due his name. So, to summarize, to pray, let your name be made holy or kept holy, is to pray that people would recognize and acknowledge that God is the one true God and he is the only one worthy of worship. And since worship is the total surrender to God of every aspect of daily life, That means that those that worship him will live holy lives. Now, Ezekiel 36. When when we preach holiness, which by the way, holiness is not a denomination. It's the calling of holy people. The risk that we run when we preach holiness is the misinterpretation of our words so that people become legalistic. In other words, they live in a way to where they just check off boxes to be made right with God. Don't work like that. It's in the text, Ezekiel 36. Let me say this. Ezekiel 36 teaches that God acts not for the sake of people, but for the sake of his holy name. Implication. God saved you for the sake of his holy name. Not because there was anything in you worth saving. I use my pastoral mm, authority to ask a song that I, that actually I kind of like the song in one sense, but it gave me mm, theological diarrhea. <laughs> Don't ask me what that looks like. <laughs> I should have thought about that more before I said it. We sang it here one or two times, and I just told my wife, it gives me indigestion. Here are the words. You thought I was worth saving. What in us is worth saving? 
We are a totally depraved people. Every part of our being has been infected by sin. There is nothing in us worth saving. He acted for his holy name. So then what does God do? How does God make unholy people holy? That's what the remainder of Ezekiel 36 about, is about. Verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Hear me, church. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Holiness. Y'all are worried right now. I know y'all quiet because y'all think he's still on his first point. <laughs> ha! That's right. Holiness. <laughs> hear me, hear me. This is, this is crucial. Holiness is not a matter of trying harder. Holiness is not a matter of behavior modification. God teaches us in Ezekiel 36 that holiness is a matter of the heart. We are unholy because we have evil, deceitful hearts. And the only way to become holy and to be holy is by receiving a new heart. And God shows us here in 36 that we are so jacked up, we are so much of a hot mess that we can't even fix our own heart. So what does God says? He says, I'll give you a new heart. Friends, keeping God's law in his commands is not just a matter of having a lot of self-will. It doesn't work. It's a matter of the heart. The reason you do unholy things is because you have an unholy heart. Don't think you're going to fix your unholiness just by behaving better. It, don't, it, it won't last. It may work for one hour, but it won't lead to lifelong change. What we need is a new heart, and the only person that can give us a heart that satisfies the holiness of God is the holy God himself. And so God says, I'll give you a new heart. And then we'll be able to keep his name holy. How do I know it's not a matter of self-will? Verse 27, Jesus says, not only will I give you a new heart, but I'll give you a new spirit. And when, that, when I put that spirit within you, that spirit will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. The only way to conduct ourselves in ways that honor God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh. Man, I want to say so much more about that, but I've got two more points. And some, to pray, let your name be kept holy, is to pray for God to give dead men a new heart and a new spirit, and for God to continue to transform the heart of those he has chosen. Don't worry, the next one is not as long. Remember, look at my point. The title of this is The Primacy of Prayer. Because 
that's of utmost importance. That's where I leaned in. Because we got to get this. The next part, the next petition deals with the program of prayer. The program of prayer. Verse 10. <clears throat> Your kingdom come. What do you mean, Brandon, by program? The word program means, according to dictionary.com, a plan of action to accomplish a specified end. What is God's program? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God's program is his kingdom. God's plan of action throughout all eternity has been the kingdom of God. Therefore, fully devoted followers of Christ are most concerned with God's program of his kingdom. And so he says, you need to be praying your kingdom come. Now, when Jesus makes this statement, there are a few things that Jesus affirms. One is very simple. God is king. Not Caesar, God. God has a kingdom. That kingdom has laws. However, he also teaches that his kingdom is not yet what it will be. That's why he says we pray, your kingdom come. Let's just, look, let's just do some easy observation here. If God is king over us, then that means we are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's how everybody else feeling right now with that statement. <laughs> if God is king, and he has a kingdom, and he is our God, that means our primary loyalty, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we have a different value system. Jesus said this, my kingdom is not of this world. The problem in the church is that we try to merge the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the earth. We have diluted the kingdom of God by trying to merge the kingdom of God with the kingdom of whatever country you're a part of. So as citizens of the kingdom of of God, we pledge allegiance to the kingdom first. The sad reality is that all too often people in the church are better citizens of their earthly country than they are of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. I'm going to leave you alone because I already got on you about your pro-life. 
So I won't lean into that part. So the question that you must, have, that you must ask, why do we want the kingdom to come? Because it's not here yet. Let me say this. Let me say it like this. Because it's here, but it's not fully here. Here's how they taught me in seminary. It's already, but thank you, but not yet. How do we know that the kingdom of God is already here? When Jesus was on the earth, his first sermon was this, repent. How is that for an introduction? Ha! That's how I'm going to start preaching on Sunday morning. Repent. <laughs> for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, repent because the kingdom of God is here. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about the coming of the kingdom, he told them this. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, this is Jesus, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. By the way, he was referring to himself. In other words, Jesus spoke multiple times that the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God broke in at the coming of, of, of Christ's first advent. When, when Jesus Christ came, the first time the kingdom of God arrived. Jesus' first coming inaugurated the kingdom of God. However, the kingdom of God has not yet fully come in all its perfection. How do we know? Because there are still challengers to his kingdom. Colossians tells us that there is another kingdom at work, the kingdom of darkness. But the good news of the kingdom is that those who put their trust in Jesus Christ have been translated from the kingdom of darkness to now they're into the kingdom of Christ. By the way, there are only two kingdoms at play here, darkness and Christ. You're either in, there's no in-between. You're either in one or the other. So you may be wondering, I'm praying your kingdom come but here's the question that I have. Lord, what you waiting on? I'm glad you asked. God's delay is actually evidence of God's grace. Woo. God, church, is a patient God. That's what you say, thank you, Jesus. Slow to anger. Let me give you some scripture. Matthew 24, verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Oh, you missed it. Let me read it again. You just added two minutes to the sermon. Matthew 24, verse 14 says, And the gospel of the kingdom will, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then 
the end will come. What is God waiting on? He's waiting for the gospel to go far and wide so that all people can hear, all types of people can hear about the gospel and, to re- and respond affirmatively by faith. What is God waiting on? He's waiting on you to share the gospel and he's waiting on you to respond to the gospel by faith. What? That's grace because he could come back right now and a whole lot of our friends and family will go to hell. But God is so patient and God is so gracious. He says, I'm going to let the gospel get to them so that they can come into my kingdom. So then, why should we be so ready for the kingdom to come so much so that it's this, this idea of your kingdom come ends up in this prayer? Because when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, all evil will be done away with. When the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness, people will gladly submit to the authority of the divine king. When the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness, which comes at the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be no more crime, no more, no, no more sickness, no more pain, no more hatred, no more grief. When the kingdom of God comes, all who rejected him and oppressed his people will be judged and sentenced to eternal torment. When the kingdom of God comes, all will be made right. That's why we're so ready for it to come. Friends, there will be no more injustice in any of its forms when the kingdom of God comes fully. Satan, sin, and death will be no more. So we pray, let your kingdom come, because this is God's program throughout all eternity. We pray, let your kingdom come, because that's the message Jesus proclaimed. Now, this is where y'all get quiet again. To pray this prayer is to put off all worldly pursuits. To pray this prayer, your kingdom come, is to say, I'm okay if I don't get that degree. To pray this prayer, your kingdom come, means that I'm okay if you come before I can get married. To pray this prayer, your kingdom come, means that I may not get to that dream vacation that dream home. To pray this prayer, your kingdom come, means that I may have to forfeit success. To pray your kingdom come means I may not get grandchildren. That's y'all's, not mine. (laughs) Friends, do we really hunger for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness? Let me say that this specific prayer can be a dangerous prayer to pray. To pray this prayer means that I'm preparing myself for the coming kingdom. To pray this prayer means I am participating in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. To pray this prayer means that his kingdom has my primary allegiance. To pray this prayer means that my citizenship, my belief system, 
My worldview is shaped and formed by the king of kings and not CNN. Yeah, I went there. That means to pray this prayer means that my beliefs and my values are not shaped by Fox News. Is it okay? Let me, let me, let, let me, let me get on. Before I leave this last point about kingdom, it is important to know that everyone on this earth is guilty of cosmic treason. Everyone who has ever been born has rebelled against the king of kings. Friends, we are all guilty of high crimes, crimes against the state. And therefore, I sentence by this king who happens to also be the judge is the death penalty. What's so sad is that we were such terrible criminals that we were even unfit to die our own death. So this judge king sent his own son to die our death because he was the only one qualified to die to satisfy the righteous wrath of the judge. Friends, this judge is no ordinary judge. How do I know that? Because this judge stands ready to pardon the very people that sent his son to the cross. So that whoever surrenders their citizenship to every other kingdom can become citizens of his kingdom. If you turn to the Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, this judge king stands ready to change your citizenship from the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Friends, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? The only way to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is to repent by turning to God, the king and judge, by placing all your trust in the son, Jesus Christ, for, every, for forgiveness of every high crime. And by faith, this judge stands ready to pardon you. I'm done when I finish this last point. We see the primacy of prayer. We see the program of prayer. Finally, let's look at the priority of prayer, 10B, 10C. The final God-oriented petition in this model prayer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Charles Spurgeon said that this petition is a heavenly pattern for our earthly life. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a heavenly pattern for our earthly life. He goes on to say that this is how it was done prior to the fall. And as it was in the beginning, so shall it be again. Let me, let's briefly dissect this petition phrase by phrase. He opens, Jesus says, pray your will. The great question that you immediately ask is, what is God's will? Notice that I didn't, how I, what I left off the question for my life. God's will for your life is for you to do his will. Learn God's will and then shape your life according to his will. My original question, what is God's will? Theologians, historically, have said that God has two wills 
in the Bible. He has a decorative will, and he has a perceptive will. The decorative will, D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E, are those actions that God has decreed will come to pass. The, the decorative will of God means that nothing or no one can thwart it. No person, no government, no nation, no agency, no power can cause God's decorative will not to come to pass. Friends, God's decorative will, his decrees, will always be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because God has decreed it. You may be wondering, Brandon, show it to me in Scripture. All right? Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, here's the thing you must understand about God's decorative will. God's decorative will, we, we can know it or we may not know it. There are parts of God's decorative will that are hidden. Are you sure about that, Brandon? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. The point, there are some things about God's will that just ain't your business. That's the decorative will. There's also the preceptive will. Precept meaning Commands, rules, regulations. In other words, the perceptive will deals with those, what God commands of us as revealed in Scripture and those things that please him. It is those things that God commands of us as revealed in Scripture and those things that bring him pleasure. Now, in contrast to the decorative will the perceptive will of God does not always come to pass. Why? Because it involves human beings. Unlike the decorative will, God's perceptive will can always be known. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. That's his decorative will. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That, that means purpose, we may do all the words of his law. God only expects of us what he has revealed to us. So then when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your will be done, he's referring to the perceptive will of God. Because the decorative will of God is always done on earth as it is in heaven. No matter what you do or don't do, because God decrees it, it has to come to pass. But there are certain things that God has commanded that is based on our obedience. That's his perceptive will. So then, to pray this prayer for God's people is for God's people to obey his commands and do those things that please him. 
I need to help somebody real quick. This prayer is a prayer to be a God pleaser, not a people pleaser. Ooh. Thank you. You come back next Sunday. <laughs> to pray this prayer, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, is to renounce people pleasing. Your will, next part, be done. Jesus said to his disciples to pray, your will be done. Very simple. God's will is to be done. For way too many Christians, God's will is not done because we're too busy weighing the pros and cons. In other words, we are stuck and we, 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 we suffer from the paralysis of analysis. We are so busy analyzing situations that it has paralyzed us so that we do nothing. God's will is not being done because we are analyzing so much. Jesus said, pray, God's will be done. The reason God's will oftentimes is not done is because we're unwilling to take a risk. God's will is not being done is because we don't want to surrender our comfort. We're more attached to our security, whatever that may be, than trusting in the will of God. God's will is to be done. But Brandon, how do I know God's will? How can I know God's will? Can God's will be known? Yes. How do I learn it? Read the Bible. I'm serious. God's will is in God's word. So then when we make choices, it's based on God, what God has revealed in Scripture. Where God has spoken, we, we just do it. Where God has spoken, we obey. But Brandon, God didn't tell me who to marry. He didn't tell me where to go to school. That means God has given us freedom of choice. Wait. Freedom of choice means that you can, doesn't mean you can pick whatever you want to without uh, uh, any kind of consequences. Freedom of choice means that you still make the choice based on your responsibility to his kingdom and for his glory. If you operate in the realm of freedom, God expects you to exercise human wisdom. And if you don't have it, here's what James says, pray. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If you don't know who to marry, pray. If you don't know where to go to school, pray. If you don't know what job to take, pray. If the only benefit in making a choice is about you, your comfort, and your bank account, and pleasing mom, dad, wife, sister, brother, friend, boss, or even pastor, then it's more, it means it's probably not God's will. Because it's not about you. God's will is to be done and not discussed without end. God's will is to be done and not forgotten. God's will is to be done and not ignored. We pray your will be done. Here, last part. I'm serious. On earth as it is in heaven. Friends, this is the kicker of the whole thing. How is God's will done in heaven? I'm glad you asked. Let me give it to you real quick. It is done immediately and without hesitation. It is done perfectly and not partially. In heaven, God's will is done joyfully and without complaining. 
In heaven, God's will is done willingly and not reluctantly. You know, like BJ, when uh, sometimes my wonderful son, he is wonderful, y'all. He's just a wonderful child with his sinful self. He's wonderful. BJ has a couple of responsibilities. Take out the trash, take out the recycle. We've been doing this for a long time, guys. BJ, take out the trash, take out the recycle. My son has ADHD, so we give him the benefit of the doubt. He's distracted. BJ, take out the trash. Ah. Will you please do my will on earth like we're supposed to do God's will in heaven? BJ, take out the trash. Yes, sir, I will. Why? Because that brings my father pleasure. Now, y'all, y'all worried about BJ, but y'all, a lot of times y'all act the same way. God's will is for you to move from here and go there. Oh. God's will is for you to change jobs. But how am I going to make my mortgage? You make it by getting a smaller house. But how am I going to send kids to private school? I don't have a problem with private school, by the way. And I ain't got time to deal with all that nonsense today. We're not going there. I'm not against homeschool, private school, public school, whatever. The issue when it comes to our kids, here's really where I want to lean in. The issue is not the schooling. The issue is idolatry. Walking around here, a bunch of little idols. And that's y'all's fault. Not the kids' fault, it's y'all's fault. I'm done. Come on, Josh. (laughs) Thy will be done on earth. In heaven, it's done joyfully. Why? Because it brings, brings pleasure to the Father. And if that's the Father's will, then as his child, Lord, I'll do it. I don't understand it. I might even agree with it. But Father, it is your will, so your will be done. Now, before you come, Josh, hold on. You, I didn't think you were going to walk that fast. <laughs> Your will be done. So you know I'm serious this time. Your will be done is not just passive resignation. Uh-uh. See, sometimes what we do is we'll just tag on that part at the end. Your will be done, which, and, and which means that, well, you're just going to do what you're going to do anyways. That, that, that's not what, how Jesus is teaching us to pray. That's a lack of faith. Prayer is not about changing God's will to our will. To pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer of alignment. To pray, dang, to pray Thy will be done on earth as in heaven is to make sure you can steer straight. Because when you are out of alignment on your car, your car normally drags to one side or the other because it's out of alignment. 
It's a prayer of alignment. It's to get your will in alignment with God's will. All too often, we, we use prayer as a tool to bend the will of God to do our will. But God says, pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is for us to get in alignment with God's will. Prayer begins with God's interest, not ours.